Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Thinking Theologically podcast, the show where we teach you how and why you should think theologically. I'm one of your hosts, Jack Dodgen, joined, as always, by our, did we decide, resident theologian in training still, Spencer Shaw. <laughs> we had a whole discussion. Uh, well, I... <laughs> and I forgot all about it. I haven't graduated okay. yet, okay. so we've still got, what is it? Uh, we're recording February 15th, so about... Uh, two and a half months. Okay. Wow, I didn't realize okay. I had that long. It makes me feel a little better because I got a lot to do. But yeah, okay, so it's good news. You want? So we've got okay. two and a half months to decide. <laughs> Fantastic. We'll uh, we'll hopefully figure it out by then. We have, uh, I know for sure, uh, our uh, today. Obviously, if you've seen the title, beginning of a new series. Uh, we kind of know about how long that's going to go, and then we know the one after it, and probably know how long that's going to go. So all that's set up. We just got to figure out how I introduce you. That's the hardest part. Yeah, we're just we're just cru- we're, the podcast is just cruising right now. If we can stay healthy, yeah, both of <clears throat> both that's of the problem. Us, <laughs> there's an example. Uh, both of us are uh, dealing with various uh, throat related stuff voice and and all of that mine is sickness last week and we had 45 mile per hour winds in oklahoma i'm not sure where it was everywhere else i don't look at that's why i moved i didn't look at the weather everywhere else because i (laughs) uh, didn't care Uh, (laughs) i just wanted to know where i was but at it lasted for probably nine hours and so halfway through that if you looked outside it was just brown you could see all the dust in the air so I woke up like this this morning. Um, yours, I think, is more some sickness, but Super Bowl related, uh, among other things. So, well, and yeah, and hot, hot, mm-hmm. cold. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know uh, what the temperature fluctuations up there are like, but down here near the coast, we haven't. You know, we don't get that cold. I mean, it's been in sure. the 60s, but. Uh, so fairly warm. So when, you know, cold front does come through, right, and you drop into the 40s or the 30s um, and then back up into the 60s and 70s, it's a huge swing. Uh, and we've had a couple of those. And I think that's what kind of dried me out. And then you had preaching and you had Super Bowl and all of that at the same time. And then voice yeah, goes yeah. away. Um this Sunday was my first Sunday, aside from, I think, two different fill-in times. My first Sunday in over two years to teach a Sunday morning class. Like, I'm exclusively Wednesday nights, and we have other people Sunday mornings. Uh, but I've got a couple series this year that I'll talk through. Um, so we kind of did things a little weirder this year. But I forgot what it was like to do morning class, morning sermon evening sermon uh in the same day that's tough it's it's tough on the voice that's a lot of talking uh especially if you're not a 20 minute preacher guy which i am not to the chagrin yeah. of my congregation <laughs> i mean if you listen to our podcast you could probably tell <laughs> that not. neither one of us are t- t- 20 we minute have preachers. so much to say <laughs> Before we get into the things we want to say in this particular episode, uh, of which we have much to say, uh, which is why it is going to be a uh, decently lengthy series, uh, I want to remind everybody about our Facebook page, Thinking Theologically, to go check things out there uh, for these episodes to be reminded when they come out, as well as additional content that comes out uh, here and there I also want you to go check out, want to remind you to go check out uh, thinkingtheologically.org, where we house all of those things, uh, these episodes and the bonus articles uh, that we put up. uh, And we like to, with those articles as well, put up uh, audio readings of those things, not because we think you want to hear our voice, but because maybe you don't want to read it with your eyes. So uh, all that's available there too. Uh, And of course, you can get a hold of us uh, email at strongchurchministries at gmail.com or on Facebook for both of us and everywhere else for Spencer there. Spencer, did you have a viral Super Bowl tweet this year or would you only get the one in your lifetime? I only get the one. Uh, For those that don't know, Spencer knows Patrick Mahomes very well. 
uh, and was a internet celebrity for a while. You got interviewed by various people. It's incredible. Yeah, my favorite. I'll 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 throw out my okay. favorites. Uh, my BBC Radio was the first place that inter- interviewed incredible. me, which was weird. Uh, the <laughs> no. not even Americans <laughs> wanted to talk to me first. Uh, uh, so I, I I was on BBC Radio. Uh, I was interviewed by Good Morning America. Man. And uh, Jimmy Fallon showed the tweet on his show. Crazy. Uh, so. Those are pretty. Yeah, what I predicted it once. People went crazy. Now that he's won it again, I don't think people find yeah, it quite true. as interesting. People find it interesting, not but way. not near as interesting yeah. as the first yeah. time. Um, my, uh, let's see. I went when I my first ministry job. I was in White House, so I watched him play high school ball. So, uh, as a Dallas Cowboys fan, I have a hatred for the Eagles anyway. But I was hoping that he would get it. Uh, so that was great. Uh, for my wife, who was homeschooled, she had never gone to any high school football games. So her first, and we went to a few high school football games, were to watch Patrick Mahomes. So it's weird. We have <laughs> we just have a weird connection. Um, and you were in high school with him. That was when you were a student of mine for a year. <laughs> I don't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just to remind people at home. Yeah. I educated Spencer. Keep reminding everybody <laughs> that. Yeah. It uh, Yeah, I started going to school with him in 5th grade was when he came to to White House. So, uh I've known him for a while. Our dads actually overlapped Weird. in school for a year. My dad was older, mm. I believe. I think he was a senior when uh Patrick Mahomes senior was a freshman. So, it's kind of weird watching people that you've known forever win yeah. Super Bowls. No, that's strange. All I've oh. got are some guys that did some uh, Major League Baseball stints as pitchers and stuff that I've read about, but they never won anything. And Patrick might go down as one of the greatest of all time when it's all said and done. That's crazy. Uh, and yeah. he went to school with the dude. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, and I've got I've got his signature on a basketball, but from my senior year of high school, sitting oh, right over here ball. in my office. So wrong ball. that's not that's not going anywhere though. But I, I I've got his high school signature, so that's got to be I'm worth sure, something. I'm sure that it is. If you ever get in a rough spot, if the preaching thing doesn't work out, and the master stuff doesn't work out. Yeah, there you so go. my basketball. <laughs> well, we're starting a new series today on the podcast. This is actually what Spencer is working on with his master's thesis, correct? Okay. Uh, correct. The Lord's Supper uh, in Luke specifically, uh, I believe, is what he is. He is writing a. How how long is the paper? Do you know? Uh, it is, I think it's supposed to be about 25,000 words. My paper here is 26,000, so 90 pages. You're going to turn it into a book. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure. And I need an append. I'm probably going to have to add at least one appendix, so I'm going to say 100 pages. Yeah, so I, I was going to say we're, in talking about, I'm, my thesis is on the Lord's Supper in the Gospel of Luke. We're going to, over the next few weeks, look at some unique things in the way that Luke tells it that are, by unique, they're unique to Luke. Luke does some things that the other Gospels don't. He does some things that nobody else does. A lot of what he does, the only other person that does it is Paul, which is interesting, and we might dive into that a little bit, but it's kind of beyond the scope of what we're doing. But I will say... This kind of what we're doing is the tail end of my thesis. So my thesis is five chapters and we're jumping in in chapter four. Uh, So I do a lot of arguing about things before I can make the points that we're going to be talking about. I say that all to say, if that is at all interesting to you, I'm sure at some point the entire thing will be available in some form we'll just have you read it if you're ever interested in reading it Um, you'll do an exclusive audio version it'll be great then your voice that 
If if so, we're selling yeah. that. Everything might be free content, <laughs> but if I read the entire hundred pages, you're gonna have to give me something All right, for it. Fair enough. Fair enough. All right. Well, today we're starting though late in, later in his paper. Uh, we're going to start with uh, background of Lord's Supper or part of the foundational ideas of the Lord's Supper and how uh, what where the Passover finds a lot of its meaning. A lot of you listening may go, uh, I know the Lord's Supper is important because uh, the body and the blood of, of Christ, but there is more to it than that, uh, and so we'll uh, discuss quite a bit of that today, and Luke is particularly focused on those elements, uh, and so we'll... Uh, this says part one Passover. I probably should have asked you about this. Is this part one dealing with the pass like is are we going to have multiple parts of passover talk okay no this is part gotcha. one of the lord's supper where we're talking right. about passover. Well, passover uh ends up uh being uh, very important to our theological understanding of the lord's supper uh, and we've got quite a bit to say on it here so spencer why don't you start us out with the the passover setting uh, and how it relates to the lord's supper here so the Passover is kind of the place to start in understanding the Lord's Supper, really in, in any of the Synoptic Gospels, but particularly in Luke, because Luke makes the most explicit reference to the Lord's Supper being instituted on Passover. So the other Gospels, Matthew and Mark, it takes place on Passover, but they kind of mention it and move on. It's not that important to Matthew and Mark. But the Passover connection seems to be more important to Luke because the way he tells it draws out much more of those Passover themes. So the Lord's Supper scene really begins with the preparation for Passover. So in Luke 22 is where we have the institution of the Lord's Supper. And in verse 7, it says, Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover meal for us that we may eat it. So the context of the Lord's Supper is the Passover. Jesus desires to celebrate the Passover with his disciples. If you skip down to verse 15, Jesus says to his disciples, right before he institutes the Lord's Supper, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So Jesus desires to share this intimate Passover meal with his disciples. And so that's the context in which all the events of the Lord's Supper take place. But Luke draws that context out even more, not just with mentioning this is the day that it takes place. But if you've ever read Luke's version of the Lord's Supper, one thing you will notice if you're paying attention is that in Luke, there are two cups instead of one. Yeah. Jesus takes a cup and he gives thanks over it. And then he takes the bread and he breaks it and blesses it, and then he takes a cup again and blesses it. So Luke's order is not bread cup, it's cup, bread, cup. And the reason for that, well, let me take a step back. Let me mention one more thing that's only in Luke. In verse 20, it says that uh, Jesus did the same with the cup after supper. That phrase, after supper, is not found in Matthew and Mark. But in Luke, Jesus takes the bread, he breaks it and gives it to the disciples, telling them that this is his body, and then they have a meal. And then after the meal, Jesus takes the cup and says that the cup is the new covenant in his blood. And so this mention of a meal is also unique to Luke's gospel. Now, side note, one of the reasons that may be is if you read through Acts and like 1 Corinthians 11, it seems that the Lord's Supper was part of yeah. a meal. 
perhaps by the time Matthew and Mark were written, that wasn't as common. And so they just omit that part because the communities that they were writing to no longer did it like that. That's a possibility, something interesting. In the grand scheme of things, it doesn't matter. But Luke makes sure that we know that there was a meal between the bread and the cup. The reason for the meal and the reason for the two cups is because Luke wants us to understand that Jesus and his disciples were following the usual order of the Lord of the way that the Passover was celebrated. So we don't know f- with 100% certainty how Jews celebrated the Passover in the first century. But from evidence after the first century, we can have a fairly certain idea about what that meal would have happened, what would have looked like. So first, the meal would have been amongst the family. So it was a very intimate setting, which is important, right? Jesus is wanting to celebrate the Passover with his disciples before he dies because it's a very intimate thing. It's not something that you do with acquaintances or friends. It's something that you do with family, with those that are closest to you. So it's an intimate setting. And when Jews would gather together with their family, the head of the family would begin by blessing the first cup. And then this cup would be shared amongst everyone gathered around the table. And then the head of the family would take a second cup. And when he took the second cup, tradition would have the youngest son in the family would ask why this night was different than other nights. Why are they eating unleavened bread and so on and so forth? What is special about the Passover? And the head of the family would respond by telling the story of the Exodus and explaining really Deuteronomy 26, 5 through 11 would be quoted, which explains the history of Israel from Abraham through the Exodus. And in explaining the Exodus, the meal would be interpreted as a present act of remembrance of God's liberation for an oppressed people. When God liberated Israel, who was oppressed in Egypt. And so that would take place with the second cup, followed that they would retell the history of the Exodus, they would sing a blessing, they would take of the second cup. And then the head of the family would take unleavened bread, bless it and break it, and give it to everyone at the table, and then they would share in a meal. Because in Jewish custom, to break bread was what you did before a meal. It's what you did before all meals. There wasn't anything special about breaking bread, but breaking bread was how you began a meal together. So they would do the first cup, they would do the second cup, then they would break bread to begin the meal, and then following the meal, there would be two more cups along with singing of praises to God. So when Jews would celebrate the Passover, there were four cups with the breaking of bread and a meal in the middle. Very similar, if you notice, to Luke's version. There's not four cups, but you've got one cup that starts, then you've got the breaking of bread that leads into a meal, and then you have another cup. So the order is pretty similar to what we think Jews would have done to celebrate Passover in their homes. So by including the first cup before the meal, which is not in Matthew and Mark, and mentioning the meal is to highlight that what Jesus is doing when he institutes the Lord's Supper is he is celebrating Passover. And what's interesting is that he's not celebrating differently. I think sometimes maybe that's what we think of, yeah, it was a Passover meal, but Jesus does something different and he institutes the Lord's Supper. Luke would say, no, Jesus doesn't do anything different. He does the standard Passover order. He just reinterprets it. Yeah. He reinterprets the meaning of the bread and the cup to refer to his passion, to his death, to the cross, 
rather than actually changing the order in which it was celebrated, he reinterprets the Lord's Supper. Uh, and all this is important for us because, uh, like you said there at the end, we we tend to look at the Lord's Supper as a sort of uh, standalone, off-to-itself, New Testament thing, uh, when in reality it is Jesus doing what he so often does of uh, providing a fuller meaning to something you know they're remembering this passover and he's saying no it's remember the passover but remember this passover remember this death remember this um and that's that's very important for us because i think a lot of our focus i know mine has been this way uh, as i've thought about it personally and described it to others uh, in lessons and things is a lot more uh robotic formulaic I guess, where it's a sort of, well, we uh, pray and then take this, pray and then take that, and maybe some thoughts, and then we move on from there, uh, and very much kind of divorce the whole Passover idea entirely. Uh, That for them was integral to the event that was going on, and why this event was even occurring in the first place. Uh, Jesus just builds on uh, this tremendous event. Uh, You've kind of already touched on this a little bit, so I don't know how much more uh, you may want to go into it. But we have this Passover setting. You've talked about uh, Deuteronomy and the the Passover event itself, the idea of liberation. Uh, Do you have anything more to say about kind of this theme of uh, Passover here? Yeah, just real quick, the—so when— the theme of Passover, when Jews would celebrate Passover, we've talked about how this is the context in which Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper. When Jews would celebrate the Passover, it was to contemplate their past, present, and future relationship with God. It wasn't just remembering the past, right? Because the Passover, at its heart, as we talked about, is remembering the Exodus, the, the head of the family would talk about Deuteronomy 26 and recount when God liberated Israel from captivity in Egypt. So that's what the Passover at the heart is doing. It's remembering the Exodus. But for Jews, it wasn't just remembering the past, but the past of God leading them out of slavery in Egypt was for God to establish Israel as his people. And in the present, the people of Israel... The, the Jews are still God's people, There's and they are too in the present, continue to live as God's people. But that also looked to the future, where they would celebrate God's continued faithfulness in the present as they looked and awaited God's new exodus. So there was the old exodus from Egypt that made Israel his God's people, but Israel was also awaiting for a new exodus. In our Bible class here on Sunday morning, I've been talking about names for Jesus, and we've been looking at Jesus as the Christ or as the Messiah. We've been talking a little bit about messianic expectations. What were Jews in the first century looking for in a Messiah? Well, the Messiah is an anointed one, so a kingly figure. And so in the Old Testament, it was very much connected with God promising David that one of his descendants would be raised up as a king who would have a kingdom that would be everlasting. And so Jews were waiting for that. They were under the power of Rome. They were waiting waiting for a new exodus, new liberation from now their Roman oppressors. They were waiting for a new king, for an everlasting kingdom. And so... In the Passover, it wasn't just remembering that God did this in the past, but it was also waiting for God to do this in the future. And as we're going to talk about throughout this series, the Lord's Supper is the same way because it comes in this context. It's not just something where we remember the past, but we remember the past in order to convict us in the present as we await for something in the future. And all too often we make the Lord's Supper just about the past. Sit here and just think about the past. That's good, but that's one-third of the Lord's Supper. If we just sit there and think about the past, we're missing out on the fullness of what is happening at the table. And 
So we remember the past that convicts us in the present as we look to the future. And the key theme of all of this is liberation. Israel was liberated from Egypt in the past. They're waiting to be liberated in the future. That's the key theme. If you had to boil down the meaning of Passover to one word, it would be liberation. And that theme of liberation that Luke highlights in bringing out this Passover theme more so than the other Gospels, the reason that Luke does that is because the theme of liberation present in the Passover connects to a theme of liberation that Luke presents in the ministry of Jesus throughout the Gospel. And uh, I'll let you say anything that you have before we move into that theme throughout the Yeah, before we move into that theme, I just want this. This is a good uh, reminder of how important it is for us as New Testament Christians to be uh, very well educated in the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, Otherwise, these things lose so much of their meaning uh, within the New Testament. Um, And... That, that was obviously clear to the writers of the New Testament as they go back into the Old Testament frequently, either explicitly or in allusion to Old Testament happenings. Uh, but all of that is the foundation and what forms uh, the New Testament. Uh, and for stuff like the Lord's Supper, uh, this, this essential uh, reminder to the people about the Exodus, uh, this time of Passover that was uh, begun very early on for the people of Israel as something they were supposed to remember uh, would have made this Lord's Supper thing just a a huge deal for them uh, as it was connected to it uh, and connected to the Messiah and all of this. Uh, Just the idea alone of the Exodus and Egypt is everywhere in the Old Testament, just constantly, uh, and is highlighted throughout uh, the the Gospels as well in other places aside from the Lord's Supper. So kind of a, kind of a side deal, but uh, if you think the Old Testament is unimportant, uh, could not be more wrong. Uh, you have to know it, uh, or you're going to miss out on so much depth of not only things like the Lord's Supper and, and, and other things that we do as New Testament Christians, but also uh, as it relates to Jesus's ministry. Uh, and that's where we're headed next. As Spencer was saying, Luke has a tremendous focus on this idea of liberation uh, and shows that throughout the ministry of Jesus in a number of ways in a number of places. Uh, Spencer, where do you want us to, to begin with this liberation idea uh, in Jesus's ministry? So... To me, in understanding the ministry of Jesus in the Gospel of Luke, the place you have to start is in Luke chapter 4. Because in Luke chapter 4, Jesus gives what I call his job description. So if you go back, I believe I should have looked this up. I believe chapter 2, beginning of chapter 3, somewhere in there, you have the baptism of Jesus. Uh, Jesus is baptized, and he's anointed with the Holy Spirit. So the idea of anointing is what makes Jesus Messiah. It goes back to what I mentioned earlier. The meaning of the word Messiah or Christ is the anointed one, someone who is anointed. Generally, your anointed king, your anointed priest. Uh, We have one reference in the Septuagint to to Elisha being anointed, Uh, but your, your, your anointed Messiah. Messiah is just anyone who is anointed. So Jesus is anointed by the Spirit. That solidifies him as the Messiah. Jesus then goes out into the wilderness to be tempted. And the Spirit's the one who leads him out there. And the wilderness temptation is meant to reflect the temptation of Israel out in the wilderness. Israel in the wilderness traveling from Egypt to the promised land is tempted and they fail over and over and over again in the wilderness. God leads them out of Egypt. He sets them apart as his people. He says, here's what you are to do. You are to be a light to the nations. And then they're tempted and they immediately fall short. Jesus is anointed Messiah. He goes out into the wilderness. He overcomes the temptations. He he 
succeeds where Israel failed. And so he comes back out of the wilderness, having been anointed Messiah and proven himself worthy of the title of Messiah by overcoming those temptations. And when he comes back, he goes to the his hometown of Nazareth. He goes into the synagogue and he opens up the scroll of Isaiah. And he reads a mashup of Isaiah 58 and Isaiah 61. And this mashup, there's a really interesting, he omits the part about the judgment of God. He just cuts a verse short. That's a discussion mm-hmm. for another time why that's not included. But that begins with Jesus saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. But what's that anointing? The anointing of the spirit refers back to his baptism. That he is the Messiah who has been anointed by the spirit as Messiah. He's proved himself worthy as Messiah out in the wilderness. And so now in reading from Isaiah, he's defining his Messiahship in terms of language from Isaiah. That is, he's describing the question that the reader is asking at this point is, well, okay, Jesus is the Messiah, but what kind of Messiah is he going to be? What does it mean for Jesus to be the Messiah? What is Jesus' ministry going to look like? And so that's what Jesus is doing by reading from Isaiah. He's giving his job description. He's defining his ministry in terms of this language from Isaiah. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to bring in the year of the Lord's favor. That's how, and Luke goes on to show how Jesus does all those things in his ministry, how his ministry is defined by that description. But in terms of liberation, I want to draw your attention to a couple things in that description. He says that he has come to bring release to the captives. That's to liberate people who are captive. To release people who are captive is to liberate them. He has come to let the oppressed go free. That's language of liberation. He says he came to bring the year of the Lord's favor. The year of the Lord's favor is a reference to the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee in the Old Testament would occur every 50 years where everyone was to be liberated. If you were a slave, you were set free. If you had a debt, the debt was forgiven. If you were in prison, you were let go. Whatever it may be, all of Israel was liberated and it was like Israel reset. And you went another Mm. 50 years and then you reset. Now, we have no evidence of Israel ever actually doing that, but they were supposed to. Yeah. And so at the heart of the ministry of Jesus as defined in Luke is liberation. Liberating the captives and the oppressed to establish the year of Jubilee. And Luke shows Jesus doing that liberation in a multitude of ways. I want to highlight just a few here real quickly about the kinds of people that Jesus liberates in the Gospel of Luke as a fulfillment of this job description. So Jesus fellowships with tax collectors and sinners throughout the Gospel. And the Pharisees hate him for doing that because to fellowship with tax collectors and sinners— is not only for Jesus to identify himself with them, which is inappropriate for a rabbi like Jesus to do. Someone who is pure, who is a teacher of the law, shouldn't be associating with sinners who aren't following the law. But even more than that, Jesus' interaction with them was Jesus declaring that these sinners are accepted in the kingdom of God. And the Pharisees didn't like that either. There's a lot of debate. We won't get into that. Maybe we'll do our own episode on it because I've got a chapter in my thesis about it. There's a lot of debate about why this was so controversial. Why did the Pharisees care so much who Jesus ate with? Yeah, they wouldn't have approved it, but why do they get so caught up on it? And the way that I answered it is, in the Pharisees' mind, to be a good Jew looked a certain way. This is what it meant to follow the law. And to not follow the law resulted in God's punishment. And they've already experienced that. That's why they're under Roman occupation. Because Israel didn't follow the law. 
And the Pharisees were the sect of the people. The average Jew wasn't a Pharisee, but they listened to the Pharisees' teachings. Well, you imagine this Jesus person comes along. He starts accepting sinners. Says they're going to be included in the kingdom of God. These people in the minds of the Pharisees who aren't following the law. Interestingly, in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus agrees that they are sinners. He just thinks that that doesn't exclude them from fellowship with the righteous. But Jesus starts including these sinners. And he has these great crowds following him who are listening to him. In the minds of the Pharisees, that could risk, if people start following in the way of Jesus, God's God's judgment might come upon them again. Mm. And they can't have that because they've already experienced that. I think that's very likely what causes that controversy. But Jesus, for example, in Matthew 5, calls Levi, or Matthew, a tax collector, a sinner, eats at his house, and allows him to be a disciple, Mm. part of the inner circle. Zacchaeus, in Luke 19, is a tax collector. He's rich. The rich aren't presented very favorably in Luke's gospel. We shouldn't like this guy. Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house. The only time Jesus does that in the gospels. Zacchaeus doesn't invite him. Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house and gives salvation to Zacchaeus. So... Jesus, in this instance, is trying to liberate these tax collectors and sinners from being outcasts, right? They're, because they're sinners, because they're tax collectors, they are outcasts in Jewish society because they, they outside of the standards of Judaism, at least determined by the Pharisees. They're outside of that. And Jesus says, no, I'm bringing you inside. Just because you're a sinner, just because you're a tax collector does not mean I can't eat with you. It doesn't mean I can't interact with you. It doesn't mean I can't bring you into the fold. Now, repentance is a key theme in Luke's gospel. We'll talk about that later on. It's not that Jesus says you can keep on being a sinner, but it's that Jesus says that because you are one doesn't mean that you are an outcast. So you have that kind of liberation. That's kind of social liberation, religious liberation, if you want. Um, We have liberation from disease. So Jesus heals those that are blind. He casts out demons. He does those kinds of things throughout the gospel. And then you have liberation from sins. So I think of Luke chapter 7. A sinful woman comes in when Jesus is eating at the home of the Pharisee, anoints his feet with oil, wipes them with her hair. And some say she's a prostitute, which is possible, but not necessary. The story doesn't demand it. And it's not important in the case of the story. The point of the story is that she's a sinner, whatever kind of sinner she may be. (coughs) Jesus forgives her sins. What's interesting is that In that story, the Pharisee sees the woman as an intruder to the table. And Jesus believes that the table with Jesus is the place that she ought Mm. to be. That's going to be important for later on in this series. Other themes that we talk about, we'll come back to that idea. But there you have liberation from sin. So throughout the gospel, Jesus brings social liberation, religious liberation, physical liberation and healing people from disease and spiritual liberation because he liberates people from their sins. And so I think for Luke to bring out this Passover theme, that is to bring out this theme of liberation and the way he tells his version of the Lord's Supper is to draw the reader back to this theme of liberation throughout the gospel, how Jesus has been shown to bring a kingdom of liberation and to be about a ministry of liberation. Yeah, and all of this, I mean, I don't have much to add here. Uh, All of this culminates uh, into Jesus's ministry being this uh, fulfillment of the Passover, 
taking place here at uh, this this great moment uh, at the uh, at the table with his disciples uh, as he institutes uh, the the Lord's Supper that we uh, seek to practice today. Spencer, how does he uh, how is he shown in Luke's Gospel to uh, fulfill the Passover here? So again, bringing all these themes together. It seems to me that Jesus' ministry and ultimately his death and resurrection, uh, his death, which is looked looked towards in the Lord's Supper as the bread represents his body, the cup, his blood, that through Jesus' death and resurrection, he provides the fulfillment of the Passover by providing a new exodus from oppression and captivity. Something real quick that I want to point out in the way that Luke tells his version. Uh, if, if you have a Bible at some point, uh, I would encourage you to look at this. Uh, I got this argument from John Noland, I believe, Okay. Uh, made this argument. Uh, and he said he believes that there's a parallel structure between verses 15 and 18 in verses 19 and 20 that point towards Jesus being the fulfillment of the Passover. So in verse 15, Jesus says, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now the word there for Passover is Pascha, which can refer to the Passover itself, or it can refer specifically to the Passover lamb. Mm. And when you think of the Passover, you think of the lamb. So Jesus mentions the Passover lamb. And then in verse 17 and 18, he takes the first cup of the celebration of the Passover, which had four cups, right? So verses 15 and 18, you have a reference first to the Passover lamb and then to the Passover cup. And then... In verse 19, Jesus takes bread, breaks it, and says it resembles his body. In verse 20, he takes the cup and says it represents his blood. So Nolan argues that there's a mirroring here. In the first part, you have the Passover lamb and the Passover cup. In the second part, you have the body of Jesus, which is the new Passover lamb, and the cup that represents Jesus' blood, which is the new Passover cup. Hmm. And so these two verses he are the, these two sections he argues are to mirror each other, to say that Jesus has now become the new Passover, that Jesus has fulfilled the Passover. His body is the new Passover lamb, his blood is the new Passover cup. And I think there's that's a compelling argument. That Luke presents this, and that's one reason he includes the first cup, is to build this parallel mm. structure to see the Lord's Supper bread and cup mirrored by the Passover bread and cup to say that Jesus has now fulfilled the Passover. So if Jesus has fulfilled the Passover, then we see Jesus as providing that new exodus that the Passover was looking towards. Because remember, the Passover wasn't just remembering the past, and it wasn't it didn't just have meaning in the present, but it was looking forward to a new exodus, a new liberation. And Jesus fulfilling the Passover is Luke saying, Jesus has provided that new exodus. He has provided that new liberation. But here's the important point. In Luke's gospel, that's not just a spiritual liberation. The liberation that Jesus provides as the fulfillment of Passover is not just liberation from my individual sin. That's part of it. But it's bigger. We've talked about social liberation. We've talked about religious, uh, religious liberation. We've talked about physical liberation. So to take the Lord's Supper... To take of the body and the blood of Jesus, I think, is to remember what Jesus did in that body. Not just on the cross, 
but throughout his entire life. And more particularly, I think it's to remember how Jesus' body interacted with other bodies. And that was to bring about liberation, spiritual, physical, religious, and social. And when we take of the Lord's Supper and we remember the life of Jesus, we remember the body of Jesus, we remember how Jesus provided all those different aspects of liberation. And what that ought to do to us, remember, like the Passover, we just don't remember the past. But that also points to the future, right? We await the new heavens and the new earth where we get that liberation, where sin is no more, where death is no more, where physical sickness and illness is no more, where outcasts are no more, where religious division is no more, where all of those types of liberation have fully come. But the Lord's Supper, like the Passover, also does something to us now. It convicts us now. And I think the conviction now is if we're going to be people of the kingdom, the kingdom that Jesus brought, not the kingdom we wish that he brought, but the kingdom that Jesus actually brought, then we have to be people of liberation because that is a kingdom of liberation. And it's not just of spiritual liberation. I I think generally we do a good job of that aspect, not just in when we remember in the Lord's Supper, but in what we actually do. Well, yeah, go preach the gospel, right? People liberated, forgiven of their sins. That's great. That's part of it. But the mission of the kingdom is bigger. The mission of the kingdom is physical liberation. How are we helping the sick and the diseased and those with disabilities? And a lot of the time, the church does decent at that too, I think. Mm -hmm. We realize that we have a mission to the sick. But what about the social outcasts? How do we go about bringing that aspect of the liberation of the kingdom? How do we help the poor? Not just how do we give money to the poor, but what are we doing to deal with the problems of poverty? How do we go about combating things like racism or sexism in our world? More importantly, I think sometimes is how do we go about educating ourselves on those things? Are we going to come right out of the gate and say this or that? Maybe say, well, those things don't exist. They don't actually happen. Or are we going to actually take time to educate ourselves on some of the social problems of our world before we start spewing things about them? How do we deal with those social aspects of our world? How do we reach out to those that need religious liberation. So one of the things that I point out in the conclusion of my thesis is I say that Jesus' liberation reaches out to those who are outcasts in the first century because of the religious leaders. The religious leaders are the ones making them outcasts. The tax collectors, the sinners, the the, the sinful woman, that's why they're outcasts. Those are the people that Jesus reaches out to, that that religious kind of liberation. One of the things that I point out is, well, who are the people that a lot of the times our churches or our religious leaders want to make outcasts? And a couple of things that that came to my mind is I thought, well, uh, maybe a woman who's had an abortion, Christians who tend to be pro-life, maybe we make outcasts someone who made a decision that we disagree with. Um, maybe someone drug, alcohol, addict. We disagree with their life choices. They become an outcast. Someone who's a part of the LGBTQ community. A lot of Christians have more conservative stance on that issue. Maybe we ostracize those who are living a lifestyle that we don't approve of. We're going to talk more about forgiveness and repentance because that's a theme in in, in Luke. 
Luke's Jesus wasn't a social activist like we would define it today. Luke's Jesus does call for repentance, but he doesn't call for repentance before he sits down at a table and eats with these people. That comes after the meal. We're going to hit on that more as as we move on. But religious liberation looks like sitting down at the table with those that traditional religion excludes. And you could I that that list could keep on going, but I'm hoping that begins to open our minds to what it looks like to bring the liberation of the kingdom. And that liberation of the kingdom as my thesis argues begins mm-hmm. at the table. More on that to come, but that re- liberation of the kingdom is what we are reminded of at the table. When we gather around the Lord's table, we're reminded of the kingdom of the Lord, which is a kingdom of liberation. And our call as citizens of that kingdom to bring that liberation into the world. I think just to summarize this before we uh, have our, our send off here for the for the show um, is like you were saying before, there are so many of these liberating things that uh, churches participate in for various reasons, but uh, it's it's often disconnected, or if, um, not even often, like it almost always is disconnected from things like the Lord's Supper and all of this. You know, we go, well, I think Jesus would do these sorts of things, or we see Jesus doing these sorts of things, so we should do those kinds of things too. And then we go to the Lord's Supper, and it's, okay, uh, we'll, we'll take this stuff, and we don't really see how all of this is uh, holistic. And I think that's what will be clear as we continue to go through this series uh, and talk about these various elements, some of which Spencer has teased here at the the end of all of this, but how the, uh, the table is a part of our holistic uh, being as God's people, uh, as God's kingdom people, uh, and our uh, ministry throughout uh, throughout the world, wherever we may may find ourselves. So I'm just as interested in the study as I hope you listening at home are. I did not write a 90-page paper on this, so uh, I wrote a much shorter paper <laughs> when I was in preaching school, um, but it was just for a bachelor's. So uh, yeah, so I'm I'm very interested to see how all of this goes a lot of the study that Spencer has put in. I know he's spent a lot of time and work uh, on this study, so uh, I think it'll be very good. Uh, I'd encourage you to stick along and uh, listen to all of the uh, various things that we have to talk about when it comes to this particular subject. Uh, and I would encourage you as well to make sure that you are liked uh, the liking the Facebook page for Thinking Theologically, as well as checking out thinkingtheologically.org uh, because, uh, as we've said, there's a lot of content on this particular subject, uh, some of which may show up as uh, articles about different facets and things like that, and we'd hate for you to miss uh, that additional uh, study and information here. Uh, that's all we've got, I think. Spencer, you you get it all out for this episode? As as much as I think You're I'm going to. I'll, I'll, I'll <laughs> cool. tap out. Well, we'll have, uh, we'll have some more saved up for uh, the next one then. I'm Jack. That's Spencer. We'll see you next time.